If you have your Bibles, please get them open to John chapter 4. There's a reason that video played because we are taking a break from the book of Mark for the month of December. Uh, first Sunday in January, we'll jump right back into Mark chapter 3. Um, Brandon will be leading that service and, and we're excited to get back into it. But we're going to do an Advent series this month that's a little different than any other Advent series we've done. And, and we'll spend some time today explaining uh, what we're going to do there. But if you uh, don't have a Bible, there's a black one to see back in front of you on page 944 of it is where you need to be. You can follow along with us and um, we're excited to be in John 4 together this morning. And I just want to thank each and every one of you for being here and uh, wish a happy start of the Christmas season to you. Um, as you can see, it's Christmas around here in every way. And so we're leaning into it and excited about it this year and uh, hope it's going to be a good season for you. And <clears throat> just want to make mention that this coming Saturday is our community outreach dinner. Um, and I tell you that just to, for twofold. Number one, I ask you to be in prayer for it. But number two, to thank you. Um, because they've had so many volunteers uh, sign up to come help at that and make uh, desserts for it. Um, that's been awesome to see. And so uh, for whatever ways you're helping with that, if you're helping with that, please hear our gratitude and thank you. And then the rest of you, if you, could just, if you can't be there that day, please be in prayer for it as uh, we reach out to our community and try to try to meet some spiritual needs and hopefully uh, get the chance to uh, meet some spiritual needs as well. And so um, please be in prayer for that. And I'm going to ask you uh, to join me in a word of prayer as we uh, launch out of this message. So let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful to be here today. We're, we're grateful for this uh, chance just to open your word, to, to hear uh, directly from Jesus this morning, God. And, just, and just, I just pray that as, as we look into that, that his voice would be loudest. Um, Lord, that you would speak, that you would move, that you would teach. Uh, you'd push me out of the way and shove all distractions of life out of the way. And you just have your way at this moment. And we pray all this in his powerful name. Amen. So for our, the start of the sermon today, I want to do something a little different than I normally do, right? I want, what I want to do is I want to describe two uh, different experiences, two different scenarios that are completely hypothetical, but I would argue are incredibly possible. In fact, I would say I've, I've lived one of these before, right? And both involve an everyday experience, like let's say going to the grocery store. Okay, so for scenario number one, you pull in to the parking lot and you're already bothered by how full the lot is, right? Because you're in a hurry. And you're driving through looking for spots and you see not one but two different cars who are parked in such a way that they're not in between the lines. They're taking up multiple spots and your anger increases at how, how, how selfish people could be to take up those spots, right? So you end up parking further away from the store than you want and you walk in and you get, get your car and you start going through. And as you go through each aisle, you become more and more increasingly annoyed because of how full they are. You can't navigate your way through. And part of the reason they're full is that there are those people who are just standing there staring at shelves. They're actually not picking anything. They're, like, they're just looking. Like for way too long a time, you're like, how long does it take to look at 20 different cookies before you pick one, right? And they're just not getting out of your way fast enough for you to move. And so you round a corner and you get to another aisle and that's when you see somebody that you know. Maybe somebody you work with. Maybe it's somebody from your neighborhoods. Maybe somebody from church. But you don't have time. Right? You don't, you don't, there's no time for this. And so you quickly dart back around the aisle, hoping they didn't see you and move on. Okay? You finally get everything you need and you go to check out and all the lines of the checkout are long and so you go to the U-Scan, which is your first mistake. Right? Because what you see when you get to U-Scan is you see people using the U-Scan who should never, ever, ever use the U-Scan. It's not for everybody. And so your, your frustration is increasing and what you do to numb this is you just pull out your phone and you mindlessly scroll through it until it's your turn. And then you scan your items and you immediately think about how much better you are at this than everybody who was before you and how quick you are at it, right? And then you pay for your items and you leave and you get to your vehicle 
vehicle and you let out one more, oh, come on, as you're trying to pull out because someone's driving the wrong, the wrong way down the parking aisle. And finally, you pull out of the parking lot and you're on your way home and you have your groceries, you've accomplished your lifts, but you have little peace and much frustration. Scenario two is the same day. It's the same store, you have the same list, and it's the same you. But you pull in the full parking lot and it doesn't even really cross your mind. You just take the first open spot you see available towards the back and you walk in blissfully unaware of the lack of parking skills of other shoppers. You get your cart and you work your way through the crowded aisles, right? And you make your selections, but you never ever feel in any kind of hurry or any kind of rush. You're around the corner and you see somebody you know. And you actually stop and you say hi to them and you start a conversation with them. You ask them how they're doing. And it turns out this bumping wasn't by accident. Turns out they're facing some pretty big hurdles in their life and they unload a file on you and you get a chance right then and there to encourage them and pray for them. When you part, you get your remaining idols and you go to the checkout and you don't pull out your phone. You don't judge others' ability to use the use scan, but you notice somebody in front of you who looks like life has been pretty hard for them lately. And they're getting a small number of groceries, but their card keeps getting declined. They've used three or four of them. And you're not mad at how long it's taking because you can see the pain and desperation in their eyes. And quietly, without drawing attention to yourself, you offer and swipe your own card. And after you check out, you walk to your car, and each person you pass in the parking lot is greeted with a smile, a nod, or a good evening. And you leave the store unhurried, at peace, completely fulfilled, knowing God used you during a normal, mundane chore. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking these scenarios are exaggerated. I guarantee you they're not. I know the first one isn't because it's 90% of my trips to the grocery store. And sure, you won't always have an opportunity to buy groceries for others. But the reality is that God is at work every single place we go. And God is at work in everything that we do. And the vast majority of the time, it is we who miss it. And the reason we miss it is because we are increasingly unable to take the focus off of ourselves. You ever heard the term navel-gazing? Navel-gazing actually defined the dictionary. It is a self-indulgent or excessive contemplation of oneself at the expense of a wider view. That's a nice definition. I'd like to put it more simply. It's thinking about yourself so much that you miss what's happening around you. And today, and really for this entire month, this entire series, will be a waste of time if we can't all be honest at the start and collectively admit that we do this. We all do this. We go through our life with our heads down way too much. We funnel every experience we have through the prism of self. What about me? How does this affect me? What about what I want? What about what's best for me? What about what's easiest for me? What about what's most comfortable for me? We all do this, myself included. But that's not my fear this morning. My fear is not that we're all guilty of this. My fear is that we're okay with it. My fear is that we don't see this as a problem. My fear is that we fail to consider just how costly this is, that we don't recognize how this is the most damaging thing in our life, in our world right now. And therefore, we're not actively trying to change it. We're not asking God to transform us. We're just okay with it. And so for the month of December, we're taking a break from the book of Mark and we're doing an Advent series called Looking Up and we're gonna go through different characters of the Christmas story. We're gonna unpack their background and their upbringing and, and everything that led to that moment for them. We're gonna look deep, do a deep dive on Joseph and a deep dive on Mary and a deep dive on the child and what we're gonna discover is that anybody involved in the story had ever thought about themselves once 
none of what we're celebrating at Christmas or in the gospel would even be possible. And to start, we're going to look at a story that has absolutely nothing to do with Christmas. But it's going to help us establish this truth that navel-gazing makes everything God wants to do in us and through us impossible. And so if you're consistently irritated and agitated and frustrated, if you desire to be used by God for more of his good purposes, if you want to get rid of the vast majority of the self-inflicted wounds in your life, I'm glad you're here today and I invite you to join us all month long as we search the scriptures and ask God to make us a people who have the discipline to actually look up and look out. And so to set the scene in John 4, I'm going to invite Brooke Hogan up to read today's passage to us. She's going to read John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. And if you are physically capable, would you please stand with her to honor the reading of God's word? Good morning, Brooke. Is that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish this work, Jesus told them. Don't you say, there are still four more months, and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. Thank you, Brooke. You guys have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there to John 4. As always, we want to unpack uh, that story in a, a much deeper level. And any supporting verses we'll put on the screen for you. But if you noticed, uh, when she jumped in in verse 27, we, we picked up in a story that's already in progress, right? And so I need to give you some context about what's been going on in John 4, and I won't be able to do it justice this morning, um, and, but I'll try to give you key points. And so at the start of John 4, Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and he takes a road that goes through the heart of Samaria, which is already something that's not done. Right, there was a road that actually traveled around the outskirts of Samaria that all uh, Jewish people would take because Jews and Samaritans hate each other. They actually went out of their way to avoid them. But Jesus stayed straight and went right through the heart of Samaria. And he gets to a well and he's tired. And so he says he's going to take a break and he sends the disciples go into town uh, to get some food. And he stays at the well and, and rests. And it's high noon and there's a woman who comes to the well to get water. This is one of the hottest parts of the day. And so you would only come to get water at that time of day if you're trying to avoid every other person. 
Right? And so she's surprised to see a man there. She's even more shocked when he starts speaking to her. And Jesus strikes up this fascinating conversation with her that's incredibly loaded. And in it, he first he asks her for water. And he tells her right, that he has spiritual water. He has water that he could give her that will well up into eternal life. And the conversation takes a turn when he tells her to go get her husband. To which she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus is like, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the guy that you're living with now isn't your husband. Which quickly makes the woman realize she's not dealing with somebody normal here. And they continue on the conversation. And he tells her that he indeed is the Messiah, the promised one to come. Now again, there's a ton more there. But that's what you need to know. Because that's where we pick up the scene in verse 27. Where the disciples are returning from town. And they come back with food. And this scene is in front of them. Jesus is at the well and he's speaking to this woman. And what you see from the disciples is this, right? That navel gazing makes you blind. There's a whole thing happening here. There's a huge event occurring between Jesus and this woman. And these disciples can't see any of it. Not only can't they see it, they don't understand it. They don't get it. They're, uh, part of them is amazed at what they're seeing. The other part is confused. And you know, you, you know what else they do? There's not a single time in this entire passage where they ask Jesus a question. They're not even trying to learn. And if you know their background, it's easy to see why. They're, they're navel-gazing. They just can't get over themselves. Now, you have to understand their upbringing and culture to get this, right? They were raised in a culture where women weren't valued, right? Uh, um, they were raised in a culture where Gentiles were seen as lesser than, and worst of all would be Samarians. Samaritans, right? And so a Jewish man would rarely, if ever, speak to a Jewish woman that wasn't his wife. He, he would never speak to a Gentile woman, and he would never, ever be seen with a Samaritan woman, Right, that not only that, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but their understanding of the Messiah was that the Messiah would come and establish Israel as the dominant earthly kingdom. And so they've been confused this entire chapter. Going through Samaria does nothing, accomplishes nothing for the mission that they have for Jesus. They've been worried about their bellies. They've been eating lunch. They come back. They can't believe that Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And they've already learned if you ask Jesus a question, you can end up looking foolish. And so to save themselves embarrassment, they choose to remain ignorant. Then the woman leaves, right? She goes into town to tell everyone what she just heard. And disciples approach Jesus and they don't even ask him a question. They don't, they act like it didn't even happen. They just try to get him to start eating, it's not just that their culture and their upbringing shaped their reaction. It's worse. Every action, every decision they made was shaped by how they would look to others. Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan woman because it's scandalous. People would think worse of you. I don't want to look foolish in front of Jesus, so I don't, I'm not going to learn. I'm going to stay quiet and not ask him any question. There was something amazing happening right in front of them, and they were blind to it all, not because they didn't have a front row seat to it. It's because they couldn't get over themselves. Because there was something they still needed to learn. And it's this, that taking the focus off of yourself brings fulfillment. See, there are these wondrous divine mysteries that Jesus taught. They're all over the Bible, actually. Truths, as John Piper puts it, truths that are only understood once they're obeyed. Jesus opened his Sermon on the Mount with some of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek and humble. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. That makes sense to anybody? He also says anybody who wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Anyone who gives up their life for me will actually find life. 
These divine mysteries that don't make any sense until you obey them and then you find the fulfillment in them. And this is one of the great secrets of Jesus' kingdom. It's when you empty yourself that you're most filled. And Jesus models that for us here. I want, I want to remind you all how this started. Look at, if you have John 4 open, look at verse 6. It says, Jacob's well was there and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. And so the reason he's at the well, right? The reason the disciples went on into town without him is, and the reason he stayed is because he's already worn out. He's already tired. Now think about that as you listen to this conversation in verse 31. In the meantime, disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Disciples asked one another. Again, they're not asking him. They're asking one another. Could someone have brought him something to eat? He answers them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're exhausted and you're tired and worn out, food would be a pretty good idea to regain strength, correct? But by the time we get to verse 34, his strength has already been reinvigorated. And it was his conversation with the woman that did it. Because he knew for her entire life, she's been told that God rejects her. Her entire life, she's been ignored and cast off. She's had no relationship at all with her creator. She's made one bad decision after another, looking for fulfillment that she can't find in a man. Jesus met her in her shame. He met her in her sin. He knew all of it and still brought his life and his grace and his peace. A little bit of food doesn't even compare to that. He doesn't need to eat. His strength has been returned. You see, navel-gazing always changes us. It leads to discontentment, disgruntlement, annoyance. It always causes us to miss out on what God is doing. But looking up changes us too. It brings a peace. It brings a fulfillment. It brings a resting in the Lord that you cannot find anywhere else. And it opens us up to see things that we've always missed. It gives us a purpose beyond ourselves. It makes us more grateful, less less hurried, and more in tune with the Holy Spirit. It prepares us to be used by the God of the universe, which remains the most remarkable thing in this life, that the God of all creation could use us for anything. The best way to get over yourself is to simply just stop thinking about yourself all the time. And if God can build that discipline and rhythm in us, it will change our entire lives. And by the way, Jesus demands this of us. He demands that his followers look up. I want to read Jesus' teachings to these guys and then unpack it for you. Verse 35. He says, don't you say there's still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so the sower and reaper can rejoice together. Now, as I read John 4, I, I get the sense of what I would call patient frustration from Jesus. He's not happy with these guys. He's not happy with how they've carried themselves. He's not happy about how they've handled this whole thing. He's not happy that they haven't asked him any questions. He's not happy that they can't see what he's up to. He's not happy with what they're focusing on, and yet he's patient with them. He's going to teach them even if they're not going to ask the questions. After all, he's training them so that they will train others. They're going to lead his church one day, a church that will grow by multiplication. What he pours into them, they're going to have to pour into others who pour into others who pour into others, which means it's incredibly important that that group, that first group, move beyond a life of nasal gazing. It's incredibly important that they get over themselves. And so his lesson was powerful in simplicity. Open your eyes, he says. Just look up and look out at the fields. 
That's the image he uses, fields, right? He starts with the idea that in a field, we often think that you have to wait for harvest. It's some future thing that you're waiting for. But he wants these guys to understand in God's kingdom, the fields are always ripe for harvest. See, their mission for Jesus was that he would establish an earthly kingdom. Their mission was often in the future. He was to be a king. He was to make Israel a great nation. He was to make their life better. And it was a day that they could look forward to. And that mission, this day made no sense at all. Going to Samaria doesn't help anything. Talking to a Samaritan woman doesn't help anything. But Jesus wasn't building an earthly kingdom. He came to establish the kingdom of God. His mission was to seek and save sinners and seek and save the lost. This mission wasn't some future event to look forward to. The fields were ripe and they were ripe for harvest right now. In the next chapter, he's going to say this to religious leaders in John 5. He says, my father is still working and I'm working also. God is at work all the time. And what he's working on never changes. He's working on people. He is drawing people to himself. He's revealing himself to us. He's, he's building his kingdom. He is saving sinners. He is transforming and sanctifying his people. He's, look at what the disciples were greeted with after this conversation, by the way. Verse 39. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of what he said. Do you see the contrast? While the disciples are worried about food and customs and reputation, Jesus is at his father's work. And they missed what he was doing. And what he was doing, it resulted in an entire town coming to belief that he is the Messiah. That God is still doing this today. And he will continue doing this until Jesus returns. And he's called us, his church, to be a part of this glorious work. And, but we cannot do it if we're navel gazers. We cannot ever be a part of what God is up to if we don't look up. Right? We, we all know that, that pride is bad. Right? We've been in church long enough to know that. But few of us recognize all the different forms that pride takes. Pride is not just ego and cockiness. Pride is also carrying yourselves as if the universe revolves around you. And there are few Christians who'd ever state that out loud, but yet we consider only how things affect us. We often think only about us. We lack the ability to look beyond ourselves, and in so doing, we act as if the universe revolves around me. Which is why I love C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not degrading yourself, not, not downplaying the gifts God has given you, not any of that stuff. It's simply this. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's thinking about you less often. There's a phrase I've heard a lot in the last few years where people say, if it just feels like FBN's on a precipice. We're right at the edge of, of something that God is going to do. And, and maybe that's right. I don't know. But if it is, here's what I'd say. The time's now. Right? We've, we've borne the cost, all of us together as a congregation. We've made the change necessary. We've made room for God to move in ways that we haven't ever given him room to move before. But there remains one thing that can make it impossible for us to ever experience that. One thing that God in his sovereignty would just go and do an amazing work elsewhere because he doesn't need us and never will need us. And it's, if we as a church refuse to look up, if we stay in navel-gazing mode, we won't ever see what we could. And that won't be the only thing affected. Our marriages won't flourish like they could. 
Our connection with God won't be as deep. Our impact on our children and grandchildren will lessen. Our witness to our friends will suffer. Our peace and joy and gratitude will be dampened. We have to treat this as the threat that it is. The inability to get beyond ourselves is the thing that brings the work of God to a screeching halt in our lives. Say it again because it's that important. The inability to get beyond ourselves is the thing that brings the work of God to a screeching halt in our lives. And so we have to go to work against this. We must do this prayerfully. We must invite his saving and sanctifying and transforming grace into our lives. And then there are three assumptions that I want us to carry at all times because they're true. And the first is this. Just assume that God is at work. Jesus said, my father is still working and I'm working also, which means this. You know what that means? That's not just, just an encouraging thing. It means this, that thing that you don't like, that thing that annoys you, that circumstance that you would have never chosen, the person that you'd rather not be around, even the things that are devastating and tragic. It means that whatever has you in a bind, whatever is stealing your joy, whatever is bringing you down, whatever you would happily be rid of, assume that God is at work in that very thing because he is. That in his sovereignty and love for you, he has brought it along your path and he intends to use it for your good. That's not some pie-in-the-sky philosophy. That's a promise from the Scriptures. Romans chapter 8, we know that all things, not the good things, not the things you like, but all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. In everything he is at work, in everything he will bring good from it. And now we have to recognize that what we think of as good, he might have a different definition. And there's another hard truth that we need to understand. And if I'm the first one to tell you this, I'm sorry. But we need to understand this. God has the right to bring things into my life that I am not the direct beneficiary of. He has the right to bring things into my life that aren't intended to benefit me. He has the right to bring hard things into my life that are for the benefit of someone other than me. And the sooner I get over myself, the sooner I can find purpose even in my hardships. And everything that comes my way, God is at work. And reminding myself of that helps me to stop navel gazing and start looking up. The second assumption we can carry is this. Assume that God is working on people. See, people are the prize of his creation. We are made in the image of God. People are the reason that Jesus came. People are the reason that he suffered and died and rose again. All of it was to redeem people back to God. Which is why when God is at work, you can guarantee that he's working on people. It's why his kingdom is a kingdom of multiplication. And that once, once you believe in Jesus Christ and you're forgiven and brought into that kingdom, then you are then given the mission of that kingdom. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It was never to stop with you. It's why even when you go through a hardship and experience the amazing comfort of God, that wasn't meant to end with you. 2 Corinthians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. We're thankful for that, right? We're thankful that he comforts us in all our affliction. Praise his name, but it doesn't stop there. He comforts us in all our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves have received from God. It was never meant to end with us. God has done amazing things in all of our lives, but his word cannot be clear. God's work in your life was never about just you. It was never meant to bless just you. 
There's always somebody else. There's always somebody else to serve. There's always somebody else to encourage. There's always somebody else to share with. There's always somebody else to bless and love and connect with. They're literally everywhere. But if you never look up, you don't see them. If you never look up, you'll never notice them. And so how, how would your life change if you took on this mindset? That you would actually be the hands and feet of, others to Christ, of Christ to others. That you would want to be a blessing to everyone in your life. That when you leave a room, everyone in that room is better off because you were in it. God is at work all the time and he's at work on people. Will you join him in that? The last assumption is the one that frees you up for this. And assume that God is for you. You see, the key to unlocking a selfless life that looks up is having the confident assurance that God has you. And this is what we're invited to, by the way. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. You know what all these things were in the context of Matthew 6? All the worries of life, all everything that you need provided, everything you need to survive, everything that you would ever need. Jesus is like, God has all those covered. Now go live for him and others. That's what seeking first his kingdom is, because his king, the kingdom he's building is the kingdom of people. So I want you to think of what God has done for you. He, he knew you before you were born. He knit you together. He, he made you in his image. He placed you and cared for you and provided for you. He came for you. He died for you. And if you're in Jesus Christ, he has saved you and forgiven you and granted you life and all eternity with him. What that means is that God in his gospel, God in his love, God in his grace has already made it all about you. And the reason he made it all about you is so that you would never have to make it all about you ever again. He actually freed you up for a life of looking up and looking out. He freed you up to get over yourself and live for something so much better because God has it covered. Assume he's still got you. And you'll never have to look out for yourself again. Now here in a moment, we get to go to the communion table as a church. This meal, right, that, that reminds us of the foundation of our faith. The foundation of our faith where Jesus, thinking only of others, for the joy set before him, Hebrews says, endured the cross, making his kingdom, making his forgiveness, making eternal life possible for us. If you're here this morning, you're not yet a believer in Jesus, I'm, I'm going to ask you to take a pass in observing this. Instead, what I want you to do is to give your life to Jesus Christ for the first time. I want you to surrender and call out to him and trust and believe in him. Ask him to forgive you and to take over your life. You need his grace. You need his forgiveness. And it's yours today if you believe. But if you're a follower of his, then I'm just going to ask you to do what the meal was designed to do. Just to remind yourself of the cost that Jesus paid. How Jesus made it all about you to cover you to pay your price in full so that you never have to make it all about you again. And as we prepare for that time together as a church, I'm going to ask you to join me in a prayer asking the Lord to collectively help each of us just get over ourselves, to root this out of us. That we would look up and open our eyes and be able to see what God is doing when we finally get over ourselves. So let's pray. Father, I come to you this morning, somebody who's incredibly guilty of navel-gazing. And I come to you this morning praying on behalf of people who are also guilty of navel-gazing. God, there's, we don't have to, to wonder what our opinion is. We don't have to wonder what we want. 
We don't have to wonder what we think would be best. We don't have to wonder what our preferences are. They're just there all the time. And yet you call us to live selflessly. You call us to deny ourselves. You call us to take up our cross. You call us to consider others as more important than ourselves. You call us to look out for the interests of others and not just our own. This is the heaviest and hardest calling you give us. But Lord, it's not without enablement. You have already covered everything that we would ever need. You've already taken care of everything that we would ever have to have so that you have freed us up to this kind of life. And so as we approach the communion table this morning as a church, Lord, I pray that you would collectively root this pride out of us. That you, God, your spirit would pick our heads up to get us to stop navel gazing, to look up and look out and see what you might be doing. And find the freedom and joy and life that comes when we just get over ourselves. Lord, would you do this not, not even for our sake, Lord, Would you do this for your glory that you would get through our lives when we live this out? And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I'm going to invite Mike Hogan, one of our elders, up. He's going to lead us in a time of communion. If you haven't got the elements now, it's a good time to go back and get those so you can take part in this together with us as a church. as we prepare for communion, um, we're going to spend a little bit of time in reflection. Uh, I think I've shared before when I do this that I'm, it always feels heavy to me to, I want to make sure that nobody comes to the table sideways or unprepared or half-heartedly. So uh, as we do this, I want to make sure that we're all uh, spending the appropriate amount of time just preparing for it. First um, Corinthians 11, it warns us to avoid partaking uh, communion in an unworthy manner. It says, for if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, uh, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. But if we examine ourselves, uh, we would not be judged by God in this way. Uh, so with that in mind, I want us to take the next couple minutes to, with just proper reverence for what it is we're about to do and to just remember why we're doing it. So uh, before we proceed to the bread and the cup, uh, I want to spend some time in prayer, uh, just asking God to examine our hearts. Um, you know, don't examine your hearts in your own mind, but um, ask God to search that and confess uh, sins to him that reveals during that time. And then know that, you know, First John 1 tells us in verse 9 that if we confess our sins, uh, that results in forgiveness and purification from unrighteousness uh, because he's faithful and just. So let's spend some time in communion with God, asking him to forgive us of our sins.
Next, let's spend some time thanking God for the forgiveness that we just received and for loving us regardless of those sins that we just confessed. Lastly, we should spend some time thanking God for what was accomplished uh, by Jesus on Calvary. A couple things to mention, uh, to, to dwell on as we come with the elements. Uh, he made it possible for us to have peace and right standing with God. Uh, without Jesus, we don't have that. Uh, Jesus made it possible to live in freedom and not fear. Uh, we have hope for the future. And when he returns, he'll bring deliverance from sickness and disease. And through his Holy Spirit, he gives us with wisdom to walk in the light with confidence. Let's spend some time thanking him for that and then asking him to help us to live in daily remembrance in response to this. be reading from 1 Corinthians 11. Um, as we do this, we do it with excitement, we do it with reverence, we do it with gratitude. Paul says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We do it in remembrance of him. And then in the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. <clears throat> For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much uh, for the, the forgiveness that we receive um, to, just for a multitude of times. Um, no sin is, is uh, too big to be forgiven by uh, what you did for us, and we thank you for that. And as we go from here, uh, may we look up uh, to see what you're doing um, in the lives of those around us, and I just pray that you would help us to live in response to this, uh, this goodness that we celebrate today. 
We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we're dismissed, uh, just a couple announcements real quick. Um, this Saturday is our community outreach meal, um, and we just wanted to say thank you for everybody who signed up for that. Um, it's just a really good showing of support uh, for that ministry and for what the Lord's going to do there. We're just we're excited about that. And so if you could just be prayerful for that meal, um, we're so excited about being able to bless uh, this community that God has placed us in. Um, so be praying for that this Saturday. Um, if you're a guest or if you're visiting with us, you're checking us out, we'd love to get to know you better. Um, we have a little Connect card that you could fill out and drop at the Connect desk on your way out. Um, we have a gift for you. Um, we're just thankful for your presence this morning for trying something out. Um, but as you go from here, remember to keep your head up, um, looking at what the Lord's doing. The fields are ripe for harvest, so let's not leave here looking down at our feet, but let's look up and see what the Lord's doing. We love you guys. You're just nice. Thanks for being here. Huh?